Good morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 25. It says, it came about on one of those days that he and his disciples got into a boat. And he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. And a fierce gale of wind descended upon the lake. And they began to be swamped and to be in danger. And they came to him and woke him up saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And being aroused... He rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? Now on the screen you've probably seen some verses also attached from Mark's account of this in Mark chapter 4, because we're going to be using Mark 4 in the message today as well in his account of this storm. The Edmund Fitzgerald with Captain Ernest M. McSorley was built in 1958, the year I was born. It was hauled number 301 at the Great Lakes Engineering Works in Michigan. There were more than 10,000 people that watched as that vessel slid into the water on June the 8th of 1958. It possessed an overall length of 729 feet, and her sister ship, the Arthur B. Homer, those two became the largest carriers on the Great Lakes. But my junior year in high school, in November 10th of 1975, after 17 years on the lakes, the Edmund Fitzgerald, having left Duluth, Minnesota, carrying some iron ore pellets to go to the iron works in different places, found herself in the worst storm to hit Lake Superior in more than 30 years. Gale force winds were being clocked at 70 knots. That's 80 and a half miles per hour. Gusts were reaching an incredible 96 miles per hour. Waves on the Great Lakes were running 30 feet high. Men on the lake recalled how the wind in the rigging sounded like dozens of air raid sirens all going off at once. The waves pounding on the ships were in their words, like a hundred wrecking balls, all banging on the steel plates of the hulls. And these mountainous waves just crashed over the freighter, rolling 600 feet along the deck. There was another ship that was sailing behind her in contact with them. It was the Arthur M. Anderson with Captain Jesse B. Cooper. They had the same cargo, uh, the iron ore pellets, which was called taconite or tassite or something. 
uh, going, uh, they were going to go out and around and come down to Gary, Indiana. And because of the storm, they were in communication. McSorley asked Cooper to stay within view of them, but a ways back, because the Edmund Fitzgerald lost their radar, and they wanted the Anderson to be their eyes and their radar, and so they were keeping in contact. But shortly after 7 o'clock, at about 7.10 or thereafter, in the darkness, the Edmund Fitzgerald long hull bent and then snapped like a broken bone. Two pieces, which settled over 500 feet below the surface of Lake Superior, those two pieces settled 170 feet apart. All 29 crew members perished. The last word that the Arthur Anderson had from them was at 7.10 p.m. and said, we're holding our own. But Captain Cooper of the Anderson recalled one particular wave because they could still see the Fitzgerald way up ahead of them. And when those great waves would come, then it would go down and they'd lose total sight of them until they were brought back up again by another wave. But the last word they had was at 7.10 p.m. And McSorley said that we're holding our own. Anderson recalled one particular wave. He said, our, our ship felt like it hit a bump. And we turned around and saw this massive wave that took us and then just, we couldn't see bottom, he said. And we went down, that wave came on top of us, but we survived it and came back up with all the water running off. He said, but we didn't see the Fitzgerald after that. And he thinks that same wave that hit them continued on and was the one that took the Edmund Fitzgerald down. Some of us in the 70s, if you were into pop music at the time or rock music at the time, might remember the words of the Edmund Fitzgerald from the 1976 hit song by Gordon Lightfoot. Part of the phrasing in that song, Lightfoot wrote, with a load of iron ore 26,000 tons or more than the Edmund Fitzgerald weighed empty, that good ship and true was a bone to be chewed when the gales of November come early. And that song with that driving guitar beat was one of the hit songs of that year. Now, folks, it's a, it's a fact that inland waters, especially fresh waters, possess a unique treachery about them. Fresh waters don't have the even, the, the even rhythms of the great ocean waves. Waves upon the ocean tend to be more rhythmic, but waves on fresh water lakes are not that way. They can be quite contradictory. They're more vulnerable to geography because instead of surrounding land like the oceans do, the lakes are surrounded by land, by varying topography, and they're subject to quick temperature changes and violent changes of weather, and the, their smaller size instills this false sense of safety. And such is the Sea of Galilee. It's only five miles wide, maybe six or seven at its widest point, 13 miles long, but its perils are considerable. 
due to the unique geography. The sea itself is some 500 or 600 feet below sea level, but the mountains around it are some 2,000 feet tall. And so it's just like a, a big cup that is there, surrounded by those mountains, deep ravines between them, and those ravines between the mountains serve as these gigantic funnels that just bring winds whirling down upon the lake without notice. And the gale force winds that can hit the Sea of Galilee, uh, they are renowned. They're strengthened oftentimes by a thermal buildup in that extremely low valley that sucks the cold air violently downward. And when that cold air comes down from the mountains and hits that warm air down there above the lake, you get some incredibly wicked type storms. And that may have been well the case here in this account in Luke chapter 8 as well as Mark chapter 4. Matthew chapter 8 also records this event. It had been a long day. Uh, they had had confrontations with religious leaders and the shadows were lengthening and Jesus said, let's go to the other side of the lake, maybe some five miles away. One of the accounts tells us that other people in their little boats went with them. And so it must have been a beautiful scene as this little flotilla of, of boats was making their way across the lake. Jesus went to the stern of the boat where he just wearily reclined and fell fast asleep. And the disciples hoisted sail and began that five-mile trip across the lake. Were there any experienced seamen on that boat? Well, sure. Peter and Andrew, James and John, and maybe others, they knew the storms that could come up on that lake. They'd been through some before in their life in all likelihood. And so here they are, they're going across, when suddenly Matthew's account, Matthew 8, 24, says, without warning, they were blasted with a terrific storm. Luke here tells us literally that it was a hurricane of great driving wind. That's what the words would literally mean that came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. Matthew's account uses the words... <laughs> Seismos megas. When you think of mega, you think of huge, big. Seismos is where we get our word seismology. And uh, we measure earthquakes that way. And so Matthew's account literally says that an earthquake shook them in some way. That was his word to describe the storm. So it was as though the lake was being shaken, and as the ship was reeling back and forth on these huge waves of water, the disciples were scared. I mean, this boat they were in could hold 12 men, but yet it wasn't large enough to catch a large catch of fish, if you recall. Now, the disciples didn't have any way of knowing it during those terrible moments, but that miserable storm was a divinely appointed vehicle to teach them about God and His power in their lives. This storm was essential for their spiritual development, which is a vital principle of life, folks. You need to understand that without difficulties, without trials, without, without stresses and even failures in life, we would never grow to be what we need to become. 
They're an essential part of life. They're part of the spiritual growth. In fact, some believers have put it this way, that everything that has enhanced their existence spiritually has come through affliction and difficulties. Storms are God's way of bringing us into deeper grace. Billy Graham's wife, Ruth Graham, used to pray this prayer. She said, Dear God, let me soar in the face of the wind, up through cold or the storm with wings to endure. Let the silver rain wash all the dust from my wings. Let me soar as he soars. Let it lift me. Let it buffet and drive me. But God, let it lift. Well, this storm was a spiritual step up for the disciples, though they didn't know it at the time. But I wonder if you've got any storms raging in your life. What are you going through right now that you would call a storm? And maybe you are so buffeted and tossed back and forth with whatever it is you're going through that you think you're about to sink. You're wondering if, if you're going to make it. Maybe it's a relationship that's foundering and about to sink. Or maybe it's stress at your job. Maybe it's some terrible disease. Maybe it's a diagnosis that the doctor brought back to you. Maybe it's an errant child who's, who's going down the wrong path. But whatever the trial, whatever the storm might be, you think you may be drowning. And you may be wondering, Lord, do you even care? Do you care, God, what I'm going through? Twice in the New Testament, Jesus has asked the question, don't you care? Don't you care? The first time is in this account that we're looking at today. Luke doesn't record it, but Mark's account does. Mark 4, verse 37, it says, There arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. He himself was in the stern asleep on the cushion, and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Lord, don't you care? Now the second time, is in Luke chapter 10. Jesus and his disciples have come to Bethany where his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live. And they welcome Jesus and his disciples into their home. Jesus begins to teach. You remember the account. Martha's busy in the kitchen trying to get everything put together, maybe fix a meal for, for all the company that's there. And she keeps staring at Mary. And if looks could have killed, Mary would have died several times. Until she gets so frustrated, she just bursts in on Jesus' teaching and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister's left me to do all the work? Tell her to help me. Lord, don't you care? Now, as Christians, we know the answer to the question, don't we? Well, six of you do. Now, we all know the answer to the question, Lord, don't you care? We know that he does, but even though we're going through tough times, we, we know inside, in our head at least, that he cares, but sometimes I think we still ask the question. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to especially take a look at Mark's account when Jesus' disciples asked this question during the storm, because in Mark's account, there are four questions that are asked. Two of them are asked by the disciples. Two of them are asked by Jesus. 
So in Mark 4, verse 38, in the midst of the stormy sea, Jesus is asleep. The disciples in fear awaken him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Now Luke's account, Luke 8, 24, records, they also said, Master, Master, we are perishing. What prompted the question? You know, obviously the storm did. It prompted the question. They're experiencing this fierce gale of wind. The waves are breaking over the boat. It's filling up with water. There had to have been a lot of thunder and lightning. And remember, these are experienced fishermen. They've been on the sea before when storms come up. They knew what to do to survive, but this time they didn't think they could handle it. It was that severe. They did all they knew to do, and it wasn't enough. Their lives are in danger. And Jesus, asleep seemingly, didn't care, so they thought. So they awakened him and asked the question, Don't you care that we're dying? What are they really asking Jesus to do right now? I don't think they're asking for a miracle. Because they are astounded when he does one, not realizing, wow, we never expected that. I think they're waking Jesus up to say, hey, can't you give us a hand? All hands on deck, Jesus, we're about to die. I think that's what they're asking. But are we any different than those disciples? Do the storms of life frighten us? Sure they do. All of us feel frightened from time to time. Does the thought of death scare you? Well, it does for most people, especially those that have rejected God and His Son Christ Jesus because they have no hope at all. This life is all they have. There were people... all around us as we went through a pandemic in 2020 that were scared of dying, thinking that, man, I've got to isolate myself, I've got to do all this. And, but there were people that were scared during that, and maybe rightly so. But is there water in your boat? Are you taking on water? Does it look like you're about to go under? Why is it that we think God doesn't care when we're in a storm? Because as Christians, we ought to know the tough times are going to come our way. Jesus told us they would. John 16, He said, in this world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. James chapter 1, verse 2. James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when, not if, when you encounter the various trials of life. And so as Christians, we should expect trials and tough times in life. God hadn't promised us a bed of roses, has He? He hadn't promised that everything's always going to go smoothly and, and good for us. We're going to have tough times. There's a lot of you right here in, this morning that could testify to that. Annie Johnson Flint years ago wrote a poem entitled, What God Hath Promised. And I think it expresses this thought well. She wrote, God hath not promised skies always blue. Flower-strewn pathways all our lives through. God hath not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, or peace without pain. God hath not promised we shall not know toil and temptation, trouble and woe. He hath not told us we shall not bear many a burden, many a care. But God hath promised strength for the day, rest for the laborer, 
light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, and undying love. Does Jesus care? Well, yes, he does. And notice his answer to their question. Luke 8, verse 24. He rebuked the wind, the surging waves, they stopped and it became calm. That doesn't tell us what he said, but Mark 4.39 says, After being aroused, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. So does Jesus care? Yeah, he stilled the storm. That ought to answer our questions. He cares. He can still your storm too. Or... He may let you experience it, but bring you safely through. It was the storm that prompted the question. And in each of the accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all use the same word that he rebuked the wind. How do you rebuke an inanimate object? What's well, interesting, the Greek word is epitomao. And it literally means to lay honor upon. Literally, it says that Jesus laid his honor, his power, his authority upon nature. And it obeyed him immediately. Interesting word that each of them used there. Now, the second question is asked by Jesus. In Mark 4, verse 40, Jesus asked him, why are you so timid? NIV version says, why are you so afraid? Well, we know the answer to that question, don't we? We may not want to admit it, but we know the answer. We're so afraid because we're focused more on the storm than we are on the Lord. Circumstances just seem to do that to us, right? We're focused more on the circumstances that we're currently facing than we are on the Lord. We're focused more on the numbers and the statistics that are constantly being fed to us through news outlets or media than we are on the Lord. We're more focused on the what-if thoughts that play out in our minds than we are on the Lord. We're, we're more focused on the worst-case scenarios that play through our minds than we are on the Lord. We might as well admit that. We all do that. And we're also afraid because... Our human abilities and power just aren't enough to make things better. Because every one of us, I think, has that tendency, rather than being the first thing we do to retreat into the presence of the Lord and ask Him for help, most of the time the first thing we do is try to fix things ourselves. Pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We, we want to do something. We want to fix it somehow with our hands. And Yet it seems that whatever we do just doesn't seem to make much of a difference. We're afraid because, like the disciples, we get to thinking God doesn't care because He hasn't fixed things yet. We get impatient. He hasn't brought us that cure yet. He hasn't made me well yet. He hasn't calmed the storm I'm going through yet. And whether it's family issues or a loss of income because I can't work or a doctor's report that came back wasn't what I was hoping for. Whatever the storm is, I'm still in it. So God must not care and I'm on my own. We're afraid because we've seen other people die. Death still frightens us. 
And we believe God's promise about eternal life to those that love Him and accept Jesus as Savior and Lord, but we're just not ready to die yet. We, we want to enjoy our families. We want to do some traveling. We want to live our life dreams before we die. But there are people all around us that are dying, and, and some of them, a lot of them maybe, are younger than, than I am. There's even parents that are having children die, and death still frightens us. And we're scared because we tend to think of the immediate temporary consequences instead of the eternal we lose our heavenly vision when we focus only on the storm. But the real answer to the question, why are you so afraid, is found in the next question that Jesus asks, again in Mark 4, verse 40. He asks his disciples, while still in the storm, how is it that you have no faith? How is it that you have no faith? I think it's Matthew's account that puts it this way. Why do you have so little faith? So little faith. And what's interesting about that, that word for little, it's a Greek word that also means brief. Why is your faith so brief? Why isn't it steady and enduring and persevering? But I think that's the answer to the question. The real reason we're afraid, we lack in our faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We know that verse. We say we believe that verse. But when we are in the midst of the storms of life, sometimes our assurance lessens. And we're not so sure. And sometimes our convictions weaken. And we're not so convicted about the truth of that statement. So our fears grow. And instead of being strong in faith, we're strong in worry. We worry about our health. We worry about having enough money. We worry about the security of our jobs. We worry about our families. We worry about retirement. Will we have enough to live on? We worry about our country. We worry about our world. And then we worry about being worried because we know God tells us not to worry. <laughs> Maybe we need the honesty of the man in Mark chapter 9, verse 24, who came to Jesus for him to heal his son. And he said, if you can do anything, heal my son. And Jesus says, if you can, everything is possible to him who believes. And the man says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Maybe that's what we need. How do we increase our faith so it doesn't waver in the tough times? I'm going to give you an incredibly simple answer. The answer is we immerse ourselves in the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing what? The Word of God. You want to increase your faith in times of storm? Immerse yourselves in the Word of God. That's where faith comes from. Let it sustain you and strengthen you in the midst of your storms. You keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. He's the one who saves. That's why we call him Savior. Well, the final question in the text is asked by the disciples. Luke 8, verse 25, Mark 4, verse 41, basically say the same thing. After Jesus had calmed the storm, it says, They became very much afraid and said to one another, 
Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, were they scared during the storm? Absolutely. But after he calmed the storm, after it's over, they become very much afraid. And I wonder, were they more afraid in the midst of the storm? Or were they more afraid of the one who calmed the storm? And I don't know. Was it a different kind of fear? I don't know. But again, you notice their question. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That came from fear. But who is he? Who is Jesus? Is he an illusionist? Is he just a trickster that makes things look miraculous? Is he just a good teacher and a learned rabbi? No. Jesus is the Lord of all creation. He's the image of the invisible God in Colossians 1.15. He's the way, the truth, and the life, according to John 14, 6. He's the bread of life in John 6, 35. He's the light of the world in John 8, 12. He's the good shepherd in John 10, 14. He is the creator in Colossians 1, 16, and the sustainer in Colossians 1, 17. He's the Christ, the Son of the living God in Matthew 16, 16. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John 1, 29. And He's the resurrection and the life in John eleven twenty five, and so much more. So much more. It comes down to this. He's God. Jesus is God in the flesh. And if you place your faith in Him who calms the storms of life, you will know assuredly that He cares. And you can sing with confidence that great old hymn, Oh yes, He cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. God's people said, Amen. Amen. That's the message. We're going to sing a hymn of decision today. And I know that most of you here are already Christians, but if you've never yet accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, why not come to the one that can bring calm in the midst of your storms and turn your life over to him and accept him as Savior? Not only can he save you from a storm, he can save your soul for all of eternity if you'll come and obey the gospel. For most of you, we're already there at that point, but are you going through a storm? Don't ever underestimate the power of Jesus. He can save you from the storm. He may end the storm, or He may let it rage and just bring you safely through so you can grow a little bit in your faith. But in the midst of it, make sure you're in this. Strengthen your faith. Keep your eyes on Him. He'll bring you through. Let's stand and sing.